Hello and welcome to 444's Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith. The music on this show is Easy, which is the first track off Tycho's new album called Weather. Check out the full song and all the other music from my episodes on the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Fantasy Draft. They are the only rake-free daily fantasy site out there, and they've partnered with Hooters to bring you the largest guaranteed rake-free contest lineup in the history of DFS, including the $1 million Hooters kickoff. To get a free 7-day trial membership, sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 444, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. We are also sponsored by Draft. If you want to join the biggest season-long tournament ever, then head over to Draft and enter the $3.5 million Best Ball Championship with a grand prize of $1 million. To take your first shot at that jackpot, just search Draft in the App Store or go to Draft.com and get free entry into the Best Ball Championship when you make your first deposit with the promo code 444. Again, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. I've got a jam-packed episode for you today. Davis Maddock is here for a massive primer on Daily Fantasy. We'll go over all the basics and some more next-level stuff before digging into the Week 1 DFS slate. If you're interested in DFS, you should also subscribe to 444's DFS MVP podcast, hosted by TJ Hernandez and Holden Kushner. On top of that, 444 subscribers get access to our lineup optimizer, plus floor and ceiling projections for all the major DFS sites. So lock in that 444 membership to take your DFS game to the next level. And newer DFS players should also check out our Daily Fantasy Strategy Hub. All the top-level strategy articles you'll find in the Hub are the perfect companion to what Davis and I are going to discuss on this show. Meanwhile, if you're into DFS, there's possibly a chance that you're interested in high-stakes fantasy football. If that's the case... 444's new show, Ship Chasing, with Pete Overzet and Pat Corain, needs to get into your podcast rotation. Pete and Pat will keep you up to date on everything you need to know about high-stakes fantasy, and they'll be entertaining as hell while they do it. Before Davis joins me, I'm going to quickly bring in the aforementioned Holden Kushner, host of the Fantasy First podcast at 444. How are you, Holden? It's good to get you on. I'm doing great. Thank you very much for the time, Greg. Love coming on the, the flagship pod here. It's the most important podcast is what it is. It's also the most accurate podcast in case the listeners missed that up top. But oh, okay. uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the listeners are familiar with what we do on this show. So why don't you tell them a little bit about how Fantasy First works and what you're aiming to get out with that show? Yeah. So last year we started this and basically I'm going to go to five days a week this year, Monday through Friday. And for people that don't have a chance or the time to sit down and listen or sit down and read all the news, which usually takes about a half hour to 45 minutes to really get caught up on it. All you got to do is listen to my show, and it's less than nine minutes every single morning, and I get you all the the uh, news that you need. Get a little advantage on your league mates because knowledge is power, of course. I'll find some sound uh, from coaches and general managers and players that you really won't get anywhere else either. You know, ESPN, Roto-World, all these places – that have the news blurbs, I go out and I dig it up for you. And I get it to you every morning. It's an easy lesson. It's real quick. You can do it in the car. You can do it in the shower. You can do it wherever you want to do it. But yeah, uh, do me a favor and uh, listen, subscribe to Fantasy First. Of course, I listen to the most accurate podcast now for years. And it's great to have you on the team. But uh, we're, we're closing in on 10,000 listens. So please, by all means, get me over that 10K mark and make yourself a little smarter. Yeah, and I can attest to the value of Fantasy First. It is really nice to get all of that information from, you know, an entire day's worth of news packed into less than 10 minutes. 
it really helps me start off my fantasy day. I mean, I'm trying to keep up with all this stuff anyway, but you know, that's the great thing about what you do, Holden, is that you're pulling things that I might have missed. You're also, you know, getting those sound bites that I might that I definitely didn't always hear, you know, and, and I'm learning new stuff every time I tune in. And listeners, I think you can do the same. Now, Holden, I want to turn the tables on you while I've mm-hmm. got you here on T Map and ask you about some players and give me your takes. And I want to start with Ezekiel Elliott. It sounds like uh, a contract extension or, or a new contract is imminent for Zeke and the Cowboys. What is this doing for you in terms of fantasy drafts? I didn't really bump him down my board because I expected this to happen eventually. Uh, what's your take on the Zeke Elliott situation? Yeah, by the time we run this, he might have signed already, right? And, you know, it's it depends on who you like more. Is it Zeke or is it Saquon Barkley? So he's, Zeke's either one or two, depending on where you're going. Um, Charles Robinson, who came out with the report that – uh, they're getting close to a deal. We've heard this before. I mean, the Cowboys said it the other day. Then there was a story that came out Sunday morning that, and I'm sure this was from Zeke's side, that there's some major issues that still need to be hammered out. I mean, let's face it. Zeke's coming back. They want him back for week one. If he doesn't play week one, go out and get yourself Tony Pollard. But for those that have been drafting Zeke at four, you got a hell of a deal, man. Uh, even if he's not signed until midweek and he misses, maybe he misses a week, maybe you have to reach for Tony Pollard or you just sit there and you deal with it one week and you bow. Hey, it's never wrong if you're playing in a league without fab, uh, just to lose in week one so you can grab all the good players off the wire, right? So yeah, I mean, I'm right there. Zeke is either one or two. I prefer Barkley. Um, but if Zeke falls to me, I'm still partying, man. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And what is your take on Pollard now? Let's assume Zeke signs and he is ready to play week one. Is Pollard still draftable to you? He's a handcuff. I mean, if you're into handcuffs, he's the handcuff to have. Even if Pollard is the backup, I would still take a late round flyer on him because you never know. I mean, Zeke took time off. He didn't go to training camp. Who knows if he gets hurt? I think he's probably the most valuable backup in the National Football League when you think about it in that offense with that run game so he's super talented I still would would pick him and if I'm a keeper league or a dynasty league I'm definitely uh taking up some shares of Tony Pollard yeah for the same reasons we would draft Ito Smith or Alexander Madison or any of those other backup running backs we can definitely still draft Tony Pollard my biggest concern with him is whether or not all this offseason fluff that he got was just so the Cowboys could try to build more leverage against Ezekiel Elliott. I don't necessarily think that's the case because what Pollard showed us in the preseason kind of backs up what the beat reports were saying. But I think there is a little bit more of a red flag with him there now that, you know, now that it's crunch time, Zeke's getting signed. Pollard's going to definitely fall into that backup role. And maybe all that hype that he was getting was maybe a little overblown. I I don't Mm -hmm. know, but... Another running back who's trending in the opposite direction in terms of the contract negotiation is Melvin Gordon. And it seems like the Chargers are going to play hardball with him. They say they're not going to negotiate his contract until the end of this season, which means he either needs to show up and take the game checks that he was you know, contracted for in 2019, or he can continue his holdout until I think week 10 is when he needs to report by. What's your mm-hmm. take on the Melvin Gordon situation? Well, I just got the uh, the conference call with the GM of the Chargers, Tom Telesco, and he went out of his way to say, listen, uh, we're fine with Eckler as our every down back. Now, let's read between the lines here. We're fine with it means we'd love to have Melvin Gordon back. Right. But if it's not, then Eckler's going to be the one, and then Justin Jackson is going to get some work too. He said they'd split the workload. So Austin Eckler, for the time being, I mean, he's got to be on your team and he's not going to cost that much. Where are we looking at Austin Eckler, by the way? Maybe the sixth round? I don't think he's going to cost you a a high draft pick. I think Justin Jackson's another guy. I mean, he could be a a play away from being the 
the workhorse there. He didn't look great in the preseason. Eckler, of course, I don't think he's anything special, but we're all about volume with running backs, right? So we don't know what's going to happen with Melvin Gordon. He might decide to sit out the season, just preserve his body, come back next year, maybe push for a trade in the offseason because the Chargers are not going to negotiate with him anymore. They shut it down. That's it. They're done. So he either, he either shows and you're going to get Melvin Gordon at a great value or Austin Eckler is your guy. And I would feel comfortable with Austin Eckler in there as well as my RB2. Yeah, me too. I've ranked him at RB26 in my half-point PPR rankings, like right around where James White, Duke Johnson, Tevin Coleman, uh, that kind of tier of players, because he has that standalone value as you know primarily a pass-catching back. But now that Melvin Gordon is potentially out of the picture for a long portion of the season, that means that Eckler is the RB1 on that team for now, and we have to kind of draft as such. And if that situation changes in four weeks, you know, Melvin Gordon reports after a few games, that's fine. You, you want to stack up as many wins in the early part of the season as you can because every win matters. Every win gets you a little bit closer to the playoffs. The last guy I want to talk to you about, we'll get you out of here on this one, Holden, is A.J. Green. And mm-hmm. it's reported that he's not going to start the year on injured reserve, which is a good sign. And the original timeline for his recovery put Green on track to maybe play in week three at the earliest. But I would say, you know, injuries, We I, I tend to take the over on those estimates, right? So I would say week four, week five is probably more reasonable with A.J. Green. He's the wide receiver 37 in our rankings, which would figure to put him in a, at an ADP range between the 8th and the 10th rounds, but his actual ADP is still around the 5th or 6th round. Where are you comfortable drafting A.J. Green? How are you handling this situation? Oh, man. I, and then he's coming back. Ankle surgery, like, does he come back? Is he the same A.J. Green? So I think it's interesting they didn't put him on IR. And they've been saying that he could be ready as early as week three. Now, it could be if they put it, didn't put him on IR, he's going to be back in the first half of the season, okay? So that's nice. Uh, at least you're getting him there. I don't feel comfortable with A.J. Green at all. Um, if he's there in the ninth or 10th, I would take him. I wouldn't even think about him in the sixth round. I think you can make an argument the other way, but that's just not for me. I'd rather have Tyler Boyd at this point, and I wouldn't be shocked if Tyler Boyd, you know, with the with the question mark about A.J. Green, especially if you were in best ball, I think Tyler Boyd was the guy. Um, I'm much higher on Tyler Boyd than A.J. Green, and you can have him because I don't think he's fallen to the ninth and 10th round. Yeah, I'm in exactly the same spot. I'm, I actually think AJ Green is kind of undraftable because of this situation that he's in. Not because he won't eventually have value, but for all the reasons I was just promoting Austin Eckler as a guy that I want to draft early because I want those early season wins. AJ Green definitely isn't going to give those to me. And I don't want him clogging a bench spot on my roster when I could be, you know, taking a stab at somebody else. Yeah. Anyway, that's my take on the AJ Green situation. Holden, thanks again for stopping by. Uh, Why don't you let folks know where they can find you on social media and all that good stuff? Yep. You can follow me on Twitter at Holden Radio. And don't forget, Fantasy First is the podcast. Uh, It's a four for four podcast. We launched it. We're all big team here. I'm also doing DFS MVP this year. So if you're a DFS player, uh, TJ Hernandez and I are going to do it again this year. So we got some great stuff. People that listen to this know the content's amazing. And Fantasy First is just going to make your life easier. Great deal. Well, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, Greg. And I'd like to welcome in Davis Manick of Roto Experts and the TakeCast podcast, one of you know the best listens out there on the internets, uh, at Davis Manick on Twitter. Davis, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Hey, thanks so uh, thanks so much. I, I actually reached out to you guys you know, a couple weeks ago because I know 
been in the been in the been in this game a long time, and I know that the closer to the season it gets, the more busy everyone gets, and it's kind of hard to nail down guests. So I'm I'm very glad to be here and help the help out the cause. Well, and one of my favorite things about having guests on is how you guys can coach me up on stuff that I might not be as well versed in, whether that's you know Dynasty or IDP. But with you, I'm going to dig in deep on DFS Daily Fantasy. Uh, that is a a weak point in my fantasy game, and so if you can help me out, I'm sure you can help the listeners out, Davis. Before we get to those DFS topics, I want to talk to you about a couple items in the news uh, that I didn't get to with Holden. And the first is LaShawn McCoy heading to Kansas City. So let's start with the Buffalo Bills side of this equation. What do you see happening in Buffalo now that Shady's out of the picture? So the way I have it projected right now is that over the course of 16 games, Devin Singletary leads that backfield in both rushes and targets. However, I think probably for the first four to five weeks, Frank Gore will be the lead back. And uh, I did Marcus Murphy make the roster? I'm not sure. But I think I think TJ Yeldon and one of the other tertiary backs will still be getting snaps with Devin Singletary, maybe for the first month, maybe for the first six weeks. But I think overall, getting rid of Shady is a signal that they're, they, they would like to use their third round pick this season, especially in those colder months. Like I think in yeah. the back half of the year, Singletary could be a top 15 running back, at least in terms of touches. I make no promises about the efficiency. So that definitely makes him a lot more draftable than he was before. And he was already a pretty intriguing pick just because he was the fresh legs in that backfield. But do you see any value in picking up Frank Gore or TJ Eldon late in drafts? Because I kind of just don't even want to mess around with that. How about you? So I am just like a, an irrational TJ Yeldon truther. <laughs> this goes back to like his time as like a true freshman at Alabama. I just have always thought he was a really talented player. I, I would say we have some evidence that running quarterbacks don't like to throw to their running backs as much as pocket quarterbacks. Yeah. I don't know if this is a statistical trend that will hold true through the rest of fantasy football history, but I would say as of right now, there's not a ton of reason to think Yeldon would get those targets that made him valuable in Jacksonville. Okay, now let's turn over to Kansas City. This muddies the waters here, right? Because we were drafting Damian Williams in the second or third round, and Darwin Thompson was kind of rushing up our boards, especially after Carlos Hyde got shipped out. What are we doing now that McCoy has entered the mix? Yeah, so, I mean, Darwin Thompson, I did two FFPC main event teams, and Darwin Thompson went in the seventh round and the eighth round Ooh. in the two drafts that I did. And yes. I think now at this point, he has to be considered, you know, 12th, 13th round would even be sort of optimistic. Like, I don't think Darwin Thompson is a bad pick now, but you, you, the, there's absolutely no way you could start him with any confidence over the next three weeks, right? You would have to see something from Kansas City's offense to say, okay, he's going to get more than three touches of the ball. And, and I think he could, but I, as, as it stands right now, I think I have it projected, uh, in the backfield 50, 35, 15 between Damian McCoy and Thompson, you know, and that's not including Mahomes rushing attempts and the fact that they're going to be a pretty pass heavy team. So I think, I think this McCoy situation is like the, my least favorite thing that happened in football the entire offseason. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because McCoy has that history with Andy Reid. He is a good pass catching running back. And that was a lot of the appeal with Damian Williams for me was, oh, well, at the very least, you know, even if he doesn't get as many carries as we might expect, he's probably still going to be the primary pass catcher out of the backfield. And I just don't know if I see that as much now that LaShawn McCoy is in the picture. It's going to be one to monitor. I I don't feel confident drafting Damian Williams in the second round anymore. I might still pull the trigger in the third round. What, what's your temperature on him at this point in drafts? 
So after I ran my initial projections, he really tumbled down Mm. the board, right? Because I I was really counting on him having a big role in the, uh, like in the passing game. And he, and I don't know, I do not know if that can be considered an accurate statement now. Like I, I think there's a real chance that LaShawn McCoy is the third down back and that Damian Williams is actually reversed roles and getting some of that, uh, you know, just that no one, no one wants to have that the first and second down carries. But I think that might be what Damian, where Damian Williams is at now. Yeah, that's too bad. Now, let's shift gears to a different move over the weekend, and that was Kenny Stills going from Miami to Houston. This is interesting to me because Houston's pass-catching core already seemed to be a little crowded, albeit uh, you know injury-prone uh, with Will Fuller and Kiki QT. But uh, again, let's start with the team that the player left. Let's start with Miami. How are you sorting out the wide receiver targets now that Stills isn't there? I mean, I think it's got to be considered Albert Wilson, Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, probably as their three guys. The reason why Albert Wilson would be the winner is that on a bad team, slot wide receivers are probably more likely to hold like uh, like 12 team fantasy football value simply because those are just easier passes to complete. You don't need to have long sustained drives. You don't need to be scoring points uh, to target slot wide receivers, whereas boundary receivers like Devontae Parker uh, there and and even Preston Williams. Uh, Preston Williams is not going to play in the slot for them. Uh, like those guys have to be getting targets down the field and because they're not going to be getting, uh, you know, 11 targets. So I, for, for me, it's really kind of Albert Wilson and maybe some hope that Devontae Parker has some spiked games with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, those guys to me still seem like really good best ball picks and Preston Williams went from being a really fringy best ball guy to kind of an intriguing one in my mind because right. I have a feeling that as the season plays out we're going to see more targets directed his way you know because I, I, I'm sorry like Devontae Parker if he hasn't done it by now I don't know if he ever is going to put it together and with that in mind why not have the team get a look at the rookie especially if they're trying to lose games essentially do you think there's any value in that do you ever take that sort of approach uh, in your drafts? So I think it's something you can definitely think about. It, it more likely happens later in the year. So we saw this happen with San Francisco last year where yeah. there was nothing wrong with Marquise Goodwin or uh, Pierre Garçon. They just didn't want to play those guys anymore because they, they knew what they had in them. They needed to let Dante Pettis play. They needed to let uh, Richie James play a little bit, Kendrick Bourne play a little bit, because they needed to figure out what they had in those young guys. So I definitely do think that is a possibility with Preston Williams over Devontae Parker. I, I totally agree with that. Now, how about Kenny Stills joining the Texans? This is, he seems kind of redundant to me with Will Fuller and maybe even QT to some extent. I I don't know. I just think it's going to be hard to sort out this team week to week. And especially, you know, when it comes to maybe DFS, it might be one of those situations to just fade whoever was, you know, the secondary target behind Hopkins the week before, um, you know, assuming that, you know, you're going to see some some peaks and valleys for all these guys. Are you kind of on the same page? So... I was really big into stills, like kind of at the beginning of the fantasy football, like best ball season, like kind of like May to the beginning of August. And then all this stuff started happening with Dolphins ownership and everything. And I I backed off of it. So I I have a ton of Kenny stills in my my best ball portfolio. And this is bad for him in like a volume context. I don't think you can reasonably project him for over 70 targets, but any injury to Will Fuller, us conti- this continued injury for Kiki Cutie would obviously be really good for his value. But also, I think if you have him in best ball now, 
he's going to have at least three really good spiked weeks that I don't think he would have had in Miami. You know, some like 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 crazy stuff like, uh, you know, three targets, 148 or 128 yards and a touchdown, like some good weeks like that that would not have been available in Miami. Right. So that's going to work in best ball potentially still, but he's kind of undraftable in seasonal leagues, right? Yeah, I mean, I so I took him in the 20th round the other day of a draft because because Cutie is likely not going to play in week one. So that that but I mean, that was the only reason why. Yeah, fair enough. Now, let's dig into some daily fantasy talk. And like I said, kind of at the top, this is a bit of a blind spot for me. Like I, I play casually. I'm more probably like the listeners uh, than, you know, some big time DFS tout. And I want to start with the basics. Just in general, what do you think is the most important philosophical or strategic mindset shift that needs to be made when you're transitioning from seasonal fantasy into daily fantasy? So I think the biggest thing that you would have to switch in your mind is that kind of over the course of the year, a given player's performance in your starting lineup is likely to even out. So you can start Devontae Adams 16 times, and even if he's bad one week, he's likely to be good for you the next three weeks. In daily fantasy, you really need to, I I guess the the biggest thing is that you need to realize you're looking at very small micro outcomes using big macro inputs and that the range of outcomes for most of the players uh, in the NFL is is just super wide. Yeah, that makes sense. So can you give me like an example of how you saw that happen maybe in a week last year? Does anything stand out to you as like a, a good case study for that? So I think it actually goes the other way. I think that people kind of overrate the idea of like consistency. So someone like someone like Adam Thielen last year was super popular because he had all those games where he had uh, you know a hundred yards in a row or whatever. Sure. And uh, like, but as that as his results got worse for the rest of the year, like he he kept getting really highly owned in DFS, even though all of these contextual things were going against him. Like, uh, you know, the matchups were worse. The Minnesota offense overall looked worse. Their team totals kept getting lower as the year went on. But people kept rostering Adam Thielen because of I like I like I think, well, maybe even maybe even more than this transitioning from season long to daily fantasy is more about figuring out how like rate projections work over a single game as opposed to how they work over the course of a year. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it sounds like Thielen probably was carrying a bit of just name brand value and there's a bit of gambler's fallacy stuff that comes into play too, right? Yeah, gambler's Where... fallacy, definitely. Yeah, that is, a, that is a very great way to put it. Like there was a lot of that going on with Adam Thielen. And so for people who might not be familiar with that topic or, or that idea, the gambler's fallacy is that, you know, if you flip a coin 10 times and it comes up heads 10 times in a row, that doesn't necessarily mean the 11th time you flip it is going to be tails. Or, you know, if you're at the roulette wheel and they put that little sign up that says, oh, you know, the last 10 spins, they've all come up black. That doesn't mean the next spin is going to come up red because each individual spin of the wheel is its own event. And it could be red or it could be black in the same, you know, probability every spin. Um, So people will look at what Thielen was doing last year and say, oh, Thielen is, quote unquote, due to bounce back and get back to those numbers he showed us earlier in the year. And what Davis is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that that's just the wrong way to look at it, right? 
Yeah, so so that is a great way. Instead of looking at yeah, like what how you explain it is just perfect. Instead of just looking at oh, this guy had nineteen DraftKings points last week, the better way to look at it is okay, what percentage of his team's total touches did he get? What percentage of his team's total points did he get? And how can I apply that usage going forward as a as as compared to just the raw output? Because the a team's production is likely to vacillate week to week, but you would actually be some surprised how consistent usage varies between players yeah it makes sense especially with the smarter teams in terms of how they game plan against their opponents um but let's move on let's talk about the different types of daily fantasy contests that listeners can enter and we've talked about the shift in mindset from seasonal to daily how about you know further shifts in mindset based upon whether someone's playing in a cash game like a 50 50 or a heads-up game or a tournament or a gpp you know something where only a small percentage of the entry uh, of the entrance will win. So cash games are really all about floor. These are likely going to be really heavily influenced by projections. So I know you guys have great projections on the 4 for 4 DFS side. Uh, I use the projections at dailyroto.com done by Drew Dinkmeyer and Michael Leone. I find, I find those to be really good. Um, but yeah, like the, like you're, you're pretty much always going to be playing a running back in flex in those formats because running back workload is more projectable. In tournaments, you're much better off playing wide receivers in the flex because their range of outcomes are much wider. A lot of the times in cash games, you'll be paying down for quarterback because, uh, you know, just uh, quarterback scoring is so iterative. Like quarterback scoring is like it's 12 points, it's 18 points, or it's 25 points or more, just kind of the way that it breaks out on DraftKings. And most quarterbacks fall in between the 18 to 20 point range, uh, likely uh, either going to be taking Travis Kelsey or, you know, just a total punt at tight end. And and people's cash game rosters, uh, as, as the field just gets sharper and sharper, tend to be more aligned. Like even even like one and two and three dollar games are sharper now than they were four years ago, for sure. Can you dive a little deeper into that strategy of if you're not going to take, you know, a really top end tight end, why you would punt the position? Because I think that might be counterintuitive to some listeners who are saying you want floor but you also would be willing to roster just a, a super cheap bargain basement tight end. How, how does like, what's the game theory behind that? So it's, it's less game theory and it's more like uh, like cap allocation. So really any given week, the only tight end that is going to, uh, that's going to project for like wide receiver one or even like wide receiver two numbers is going to be Travis Kelsey, maybe George Kittle, but most weeks, you, you know, you would rather have Kelsey than Kittle. Whereas, uh, you know, Hunter Henry, you know, we all like Hunter Henry. He's going in like the sixth round or whatever, and he is 3,900 for week one. So this is not a super apt example for the people, uh, for the people listening, but, uh, it, it is sort of, uh, it is sort of interesting to me because he won't be priced like that for more or for later down in the year. But basically, there aren't going to be any good playable wide receivers at 3,500. There aren't going to be any good playable running backs at 3,500. The quarterback floor for salary for a starting guy is 5,000. So you, you have to save money somewhere. And 90% of the tight end player pool is going to project for extremely similar point totals. There's going to be maybe two guys on the extreme high end who project for more than, let's say, 12 DraftKings points, which is full point PPR. And then there's going to be 20 guys who project between four and eight points. And you're, you're really better off taking, you know, one of the, one of the, 
let, let's like Chris Herndon find like comes back from suspension and is thirty four hundred. Like that's an example of something that could happen. And that's another thing is the DraftKings pricing at tight end is not super sharp. Like a lot of times you can get guys like uh, Jack Doyle, Chris Herndon, Tyler Eifert, Jordan Reed. Uh, if they're not in the middle of a great spell, you can get a discount on guys who do have a role in their offense. And the reason that you say that the projections aren't going to be very high except for a couple of players is because those are the only two players who are consistently getting the targets you would need for that sort of projection, right? And what we're seeing here is that as you as you get past the cream of the crop at tight end, the target projection is going to be small for everybody. And so at that point, why pay for anyone in those middling salaries when you could just get a similar target volume uh, at a, a lower cost, right? Yeah, t- just tight, tight end targets. Uh, like tight end targets all across the NFL are way down. There were there were like 380 fewer tight end targets in 2018 than there were in 2017 because running backs are getting targeted so much more often now. Yeah, good deal. Now you've talked about you know the pricing on DraftKings, but the other thing we need to consider when you know we're talking to, about DFS in general is all the different places that people can play. And in addition to different salaries on different sites, you're also going to see different scoring settings on different sites. So. To you, what are the key differences between where we can play DFS, whether it's DraftKings or Fantasy Draft or FanDuel or Draft or Yahoo or, or anywhere else? Uh, what, what are you looking for, I guess, is a, is a better way to look at it, instead of trying right, to sort so, through each of these one by one? Uh, yeah. yeah. So Draft and FanDuel are both uh, 0.5 PPR, and then Fantasy Draft is just the same as as uh, DraftKings scoring. It's like it's like a, a carbon copy, so it's not uh, you know it's not uh, too much different. So I would say in general in those 0.5 PPR leagues, especially and because FanDuel and Draft also don't have bonuses. So if you've never played before on DraftKings, you get bonuses for players who go over 100 receiving yards or 100 rushing yards. Uh, you get bonuses for quarterbacks who go over 300 passing yards. There's none of that on FanDuel. So on FanDuel, the, the, really the most important thing is going to be touchdowns. So for example, if you were trying to break a tie between Jarvis Landry and Mike Williams of the Chargers, you'd go Mike Williams of the Chargers because if they had a similar target projection at all, Mike Williams would have a way better chance of scoring, you know, a touchdown or multiple touchdowns. And that's actually, this is actually another point that I should have made when talking about cash games or tournaments. People think about ceilings in tournaments a lot. And I talked about floors with cash games, but there is definitely something to be said for if you're, if the decision is close at all, making like as a, so if the decision is close at all, instead of going for the player with the better floor, going with the better ceiling, because you're more likely to sweep your games. If you get a ceiling performance from a player, as opposed to just getting 10 floor performances like that, that could get you to break even, but accepting that some players have a wider range of outcomes, even in your cash lineup is still kind of appropriate. Good deal. Now, just from a process standpoint, are there a couple, you know, important habits that you might recommend for DFS players? Well, the first thing I would do would be to uh, just like check totals for the week, like check Vegas team totals. That's going to be that's really going to be the most important thing. Also, if you're playing cash games and even if you're playing tournaments, the most important players every single week are going to be the injury fill in running back. So the guys whose prices did not have a chance to change after the salaries were released. So, you know, this uh, week one, we have actually great examples. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, he doesn't play week one. Tony Pollard is super cheap on every fantasy site. Uh, he is 
likely going to be the best play of the week, the best points per dollar format, and making a decision as to what you are going to do with that guy in your cash games and tournaments is really important because it sounds simple like, oh, I'm just going to lock him in, but running back spots are super valuable. So, you know, you might be foregoing uh, David Johnson in a great matchup or Alvin Kamara in a great matchup or James Conner in a great matchup. So figuring out what to do with those positions is really important. And then also uh, a, a big thing is just finding projections that you trust, understanding the inputs, and understanding why the projections spit out the points that they do. All right, so we're going to dig a little bit deeper into how to get started in DFS, but before we do, let's take a break for our sponsors. Fantasy Draft is the only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business, and they have partnered with Hooters to bring you the largest lineup of guaranteed rake-free contests in the history of DFS, including the $1 million Hooters kickoff. That's right. Fantasy Draft is hosting the first rake-free contest with a guaranteed prize pool of a million bucks. As other fantasy sites continue to raise their rakes, prize pools are being squeezed, and that makes it harder for players like you to win. Maybe you call it commission or management fee instead of rake, but either way, paying 10, 12, or even 15% or more of your entry fees to fantasy companies is a thing of the past now because Fantasy Draft is the only place where 100% of entry fees are paid out to contest winners 100% of the time. To access Fantasy Draft's exclusive rake-free contest, including the Hooters Million Dollar Kickoff, all you need to do is become a member. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 444-4FOR4, and you'll get a free 7-day trial membership. That's FantasyDraft.com with the promo code 444. Don't miss your shot at the Million Dollar Rake-Free Contest, and it's $100,000 top prize. All right, Davis, so... When someone is getting started with DFS, how can you know these new or more casual players figure out which contests are best for them? Because it's kind of daunting, right, when you show up to the lobby yeah. at DraftKings or FanDuel and say, oh, shoot, there are a lot of different contests I can't be joining. What should we be looking for? So the biggest thing that uh, like brand new people should do is every contest has a cap of how many people are allowed in the contest. And people who are playing, you know, not a ton of money or are new should be playing single entry contests. And this goes for both cash games and for tournaments. They, they will be clearly, they will be clearly labeled on FanDuel and DraftKings and Fantasy Draft and Yahoo as single entry. Um, and the reason you would do that is everyone who's playing the contest only gets to put in one lineup. So, you know, in the Millie Maker and a lot of these other contests, people are allowed to put in 150 lineups. And if you're playing just one lineup in that, you're at a supreme disadvantage because other people are getting to put in suboptimal lineups that, uh, you know, have the ability to correlate. And they're just and, and a lot of things can happen in a week of football. And the same would be true with cash games as well. I would I would definitely go for the uh, on, on DraftKings and on FanDuel. They call them the massive like five dollar, twenty five dollar or two dollar double ups that are only single entry. That way you're you're only playing against the best players, cash teams. Uh, you'd only be playing against them one time and you'd be playing against a lot of people at a similar dollar and skill level to yourself. Uh, and then I would also, if you, even if you were feeling adventurous and you were like, okay, I want to play $300 in my first week, uh, and you could get that in cash games. You could get that in $1 head to heads. I, if I wanted to play head to heads, I would do DraftKings instead of FanDuel because you can limit the number of times an opponent takes your games. So you can say, I want to post 50 $1 head to heads and I I want to allow uh, a person to only be able to take one. So then you'd get 50 different opponents. That's really good uh, opponent diversity. Is that is all of that uh, holding clear so far? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I guess the, the next question I would have for you then is how do people know when they're ready to, quote unquote, graduate into these multi-entry contests? Like at what point did you start to feel comfortable with that? And how would you recommend people make that transition or, or decide when they're ready to make that transition? So I didn't really start doing like uh, like 20 max or 150 max until kind of over the last year and a half or so. I guess there was a there was a time where I was using uh, the lineup builder on Fantasy Cruncher. I mean, this would have been like three years ago, but not not in NFL. I was doing it in other sports. I would say the time that you are ready to start doing that is when you start to understand what like really sharp people are saying in podcasts about, uh, about correlation and like, or, or if you've just been winning a lot, if you've just been like winning in single entry, if your cash teams have been really good and you're looking to like make more money, if you're already profitable, because I think the, the edges in cash games exist, but I think they're really small and I think they're mostly at the smaller stakes. And right now in daily fantasy, like the, the big sort of life changing money is mostly in the multi entry tournaments. And, and of course I would say experiment with the 20 max tournaments, you know, the, the quarter jukebox. Uh, I don't know what they call the $1 GPP on DraftKings for, uh, I know in, in uh, MLB, it's the solo shot, but uh, but that's a 20 max tournament. They also run a 20 max $3 tournament for most sports as well. Those would be the ones I would start experimenting with. And so when Davis says 20 max, what he means is that each player who's entering the contest can enter a maximum of 20 lineups in that contest. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually where I kind of started doing the multi-entry stuff myself was just dabbling in that quarter jukebox because even if you max out your entries, you're spending, what, like $2.50 overall? And you still get the sweat, right? You still get to watch your lineup and say, oh, man, I might, you know, finish top five or I, I have a chance to, you I know. mean, in, in, I'm pretty sure that first place in the quarter jukebox in the NFL is like 500 bucks. So it's like winning winning that is like uh, if you're playing, if like that's that could double your weekly buy-ins even if you're playing like really small stake stuff. Right. And just in general, it's, a, it's a, a more casual way to get the feel for how those multi-entry things work, because that is another skill, right, is knowing how to diversify your lineups. And because you don't necessarily just want to, like, completely throw a bunch of crud against the wall and see what sticks. Like, you still want to have some method in, in terms of how you know your lineups look relative to each other. Right. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I, and that's actually I think you make a great point. The only way to really figure out, okay, like, how do I want to allocate my percentages? How do I uh, prevent all of the good plays from bunching up in one subset of lineups and then all my other suboptimal plays ending up? Because that, that's actually the hardest thing about doing, uh, you know, 300 lineups or 150 lineups is figuring out how to get the optimizer to uh, properly allocate the plays across all of the lineups and not just get all of the high projected plays at the top and all of the low projected contrarian plays all in one lineup. Yeah, it's really about finding a mix and th there's a feel to it, but there's also, you know, some, you know, science and method behind it too, if you want to really dig into yeah. it. Um, let's talk about where to begin building lineups. What's the best place for people to start? Should they start by sorting on a specific position? Should they be targeting, you know, those high total games on the slate and figuring out which players from those games to use? And how is it different for cash games than it is in tournaments? So for cash games, I think the 
I, I mean, the answer, the answer for both of these is true. The answer of where you start is at running back and you kind of figure out a plan of attack at running back because, uh, running backs are going to have the highest ceilings in, uh, fantasy football because running backs score the most touchdowns. They can score touchdowns on the ground and through the air. They get points in many different ways. So figuring out running back, uh, I mean, figuring out running back for cash games is incredibly important and then figuring out your running back core in tournaments is incredibly important. I, I would say also uh, figuring out the games that uh, maybe are not super obvious. So everyone, you know, everyone is going to know when Houston and Tampa Bay play each other or when uh, when Carolina goes to play New Orleans or or when Atlanta goes to play New Orleans. Everyone's going to know those games are going to be huge totals. All those players are going to be super chalky. Where there is a little bit of edge in tournaments is identifying, okay, uh, is this Brown Steelers game with a total of 52? going to go way under owned relative to the NFC South with a total of 58 and you will you will definitely see things like that happen over the course of the year where games explode and there were signs but they were really low owned um, for cash games though I, I prefer to build from the uh, from like the bottom down so you identify like okay how many actual playable value plays are there like every week there's like a 3k wide receiver who might get four targets but some weeks that guy is like a really good play who's going to get eight targets and and identifying the value plays first is where i start in cash games yeah that makes sense now in terms of that running back core you talked about for tournament players how many running backs is typically are are typically going to be involved in that like what what's the number of players you're looking to spread out over your various lineups in a tournament so this also depends on player preference like like your preferences so if you are someone who can stomach a lot of variance and if you're really in DFS to get rich or, you know, I mean, we're all in it to get rich. But if, <laughs> if the idea if the idea is that you're you're looking to pretty much lose 90 to 100 percent of your buy ins and you're OK with that on an any given week, I could you could really shrink your player pool down. You know, you could have you could have eight running backs total in your player pool or, or five running backs or you could even lock a running back like so uh, the example of week one. Uh, you know, and we've seen this a hundred times, the injury fill in running back. Uh, uh, but the, the example week one is Tony Pollard. You could just lock Tony Pollard in to all of your lineups and then you could have, you know, exposure to uh, five other running backs total. If you were looking to get, uh, you know, spread your risk a little bit more evenly, you know, you could open up the player pool. You know, you could bring in guys like Chris Carson uh, as an example. Like he's not a guy who I consider to be a core play for week one, but I certainly see reasons he would be playable. You'd start to include more of those fringe players. And then you really want to spread your risk out more or not. You want to spread your player pool out more at wide receiver and in tight end because, uh, we, we can define usage the most at quarterback and running back, and then we can define it less at wide receiver, and then we can define it the least at tight end. So the positions where we have the least certainty and where the range of outcomes are the widest, which is with wide receivers and tight ends, you should want your player pool to naturally be larger there. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. In general, with quarterbacks and running backs, you're going to be starting the same guys more often, right? 
Yeah, it's and it's just like uh, you know how often is a you know a, a backup? How often is Jamal Williams here? Great example. So Thursday night against the Bears, hey, let's just pretend he's in the main slate. How often does Jamal Williams, as the backup to Aaron Jones, post a you know twenty five DraftKings points? It's like sub one percent of the time. Whereas let's say how often could Muhammad Sanu post twenty plus DraftKings points as the third wide receiver in Atlanta? I mean, that, that's a, that's a significantly more common experience and he could do it on less. And the reason is, is wide receivers can do it on less interactions. You know, he could post, uh, he could post a daily fantasy score with four targets, right? And, and a running back just really can't do that. So that's why you would open your pool up more at wide receiver and at tight end. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, the next thing I want to ask you about is, I don't know, maybe a question that's too big for this show, but dare we get into the topic of bankroll management for more casual players? Like how many lineups or contest is it reasonable for someone who's new to DFS to play in any given week? So again, I think it depends on what you've put into it. So if you have a subscription to uh, 4 for 4, if you have a subscription to Daily Roto or, uh, you know, a, another fantasy site that you trust, you think the information is good, you're able to digest and understand the information. I think that you could play, even if you've never played before, I think you could play a reasonable amount. I think that you should I think that anyone who's starting out now, even if they're brand new, should not make the mistake of playing just cash or just GPPs because there is, you know, we have a limited number of NFL slates. Um, we have uh, a limited number of time to turn in this actionable information into lineups. And more importantly, you have a limited number of slates to learn. So if you're, if you're playing right now, let's say, let's say you want to play $20 a week. I think you could play, you know, five $1 head to heads. You could play 20 lineups in the quarter arcade. You could play one lineup in the $3 single entry, one lineup in the $1 single entry, and then maybe five lineups in the $1 solo shot. I don't know if that math all adds up to 20. It's got to be it's got to be close. And I think that would be a really good way to observe, okay, this is how cash lineups work. This is how tournaments work. And you'd also be able to see how your tournament lineups are faring. Um, and you'd be able to say, okay, these, these lineups are not correlated enough, or my groups are all off, or, or these lineups are that I'm building an optimizer just not coming out how I want, or on the opposite, they are coming out how I want, and uh, you know I just need to tweak this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, this isn't actually something I put on the agenda, but now that you're talking about it, it's it's got me curious. How do or what is your process of reviewing, you know, a week's worth of contests look like? Like, what are you looking for when you go back and you review your contests in hindsight? Well, uh, the biggest thing I'm looking at is ownership projections and seeing, you know, were the ownership projections off? Were they on? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm of course looking at the lineup construction of teams that win contests, you know, seeing like, okay, did they get there with, uh, you know, correlation? Was it a game stack? Did they get, uh, you know, a super low owned guy who smashed? Like what kind of, what kind of situation? Was that and then also, you know, taking into account, OK, uh, you know, did it was I was I too light on a player that I really liked? Uh, did I uh, something I tried to avoid is what I talked about earlier, kind of spreading out the player pool too much, because if you're if you have, you know, 40 wide receivers in your pool and, and 20 running backs and eight quarterbacks or 10 quarterbacks, you, you, you might be spreading things a little bit too far. And kind of at that point, you're just kind of paying the rake for everyone else. Fair enough. Now, I guess on that note, how do you, if you realize you did that in a previous week and you want to try to adjust your process to fix that in the following week, what 
I guess do you look for in terms of shaving down your player pool? Like who are the who are the guys who you're more likely to cut on a week to week basis? Like out of your consideration. So it would be more. It would be done in a couple ways. The first would be like instead of splitting. Uh, uh, this is a, actually a classical example from like uh, like 2016. Instead of splitting uh, Le'Veon Bell or David Johnson, you just choose one or the other. Uh, this year, maybe it would be an example of like uh, two very similar running backs, like Leonard Fournette and Chris Carson. So instead of instead of uh, you know having both of these super uh, ground touch like ground heavy touchdown reliant running backs, you just choose one of them. Or at wide receiver, it would be instead of playing one each of Hopkins, Adams, Odell, and Juju you just play two of them that would be that would be like a very good example of limiting the player pool down in a way that makes sense and is not just done not done for the sake of doing it but is done for like a real strategic reason man this is really getting me excited to dig into week one with you but before we get there a few more strategy questions uh the first being explain to the listeners the value of betting spreads and betting totals like this is kind of the starting point for a lot of our dfs analysis why do we use them and and how do we use them so I think some of the listeners of this show have probably heard the idea that like, oh, uh, the, the betting total is just the betting total on in Las Vegas is just done to like, get equal action on both sides. But I, I don't I do not believe that that is true. I, I, think I also disagree. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it. But you'll you'll hear people say that, and then you'll hear people say, "Oh, I think that total looks too low." Or like, if you there, I, the response I would always have to people on that is, "There's a reason that the buildings in Las Vegas are so tall." Um, so starting right away, starting right away, looking at those totals is a great way to get a sense of how the games are expected to go in terms of game flow, in terms of how many points are going to be scored. And I actually think the game flow aspect of it might even be more important than the amount of total points scored. But everything in the projections that we do at Daily Roto, like uh, it all comes from the amount of projected points that comes from Las Vegas. Yeah, it is important to note what you said about, you know, the Lions aren't just there to get equal action because, I mean, that's part of it for them for sure. But at the same time, they're just trying to make money. They're trying to set a line relative to the public's perception of a game so that they can, you know, take as much of the public's money as possible, right? Right, exactly. And and the way that they, like, like a lot of Las Vegas casinos will be okay having a massive position if they think that the public or or the or the sharps are betting into a bad line. Like they're they're not going to change the line off of something that they feel is the most accurate line. So you'll see lines with eighty percent of people on one side and the line won't move. Right. And so the overall theory here is that if a game is projected for a high total, that means that the teams are projected to score a lot of points. Now, then you can look at the spread of that game and say, okay, if it's a very small spread, say, you know, zero to four points, that means that the teams are going to be close together. They're, they're relatively evenly matched. And if the total is also high, that means there's going to be a lot of scoring. So that makes us think, okay, this game could be a shootout or might be a shootout or should be a shootout, right? And that'll, be, that'll make sense relative to a lot of the matchups you see on a given slate. Like, no surprise that, you know, the Saints and the Falcons might shoot out, right? Like, that's not surprising to me. We don't necessarily need to look at the total and the spread to do that. But with other games, it can be more helpful, like games that are harder to sort out. And I I love that you talk about game flow being an important part of this too, because when the spread is larger, then you can start to think about, okay, how are the defenses going to get involved? And what type of drives should we expect to see from these teams? Like, how many 
teams are going to sustain drives, how many teams are going to end drives and field goals versus touchdowns. And all that stuff matters in terms of projecting fantasy points because if there are fewer touchdowns, more field goals, like we don't want players in that game unless we're rostering a kicker uh, in some sort of contest. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about that game flow aspect and, and what you're looking for in terms of the betting lines? Yeah, so, and, and this is one thing that people sort of get wrong, is that, like, oh, you want a quarterback who's trailing the whole thing? That's not actually true. Like, uh, the, well, I should say the data does not bear that out. Even if in your head you could say, oh, I always know Blake Bortles smashes when he's down 20 <laughs> points. But the, the data shows that uh, the number one thing that correlates most with fantasy point scoring uh, is team totals. So high team totals, you know, that could be teams that are favored by 10 or 14 or 7 or whatever. Those, those quarterbacks still generally uh, do well overall. But yeah, I, I would say game flow is really important to projecting players who uh, do not have clear uh, baselines of usage. So, you know, Julio Jones, Juju Smith-Schuster, Odell, those guys are going to be good pretty much regardless of game flow. But, uh, you know, secondary wide receivers like or the, Se- you know, Seattle wide receivers. There's an example of, you know, when game flow is going to be super important to those guys. So games where they're at home, they're favored by, you know, five or more points. Those guys are going to be horrible fantasy plays. But there are going to be games where Seattle goes on the road and they're six, seven, eight-point dogs. And all of a sudden, the target projection for all those guys is really going to increase so there it it tends to matter more on the lower and middle ends of player projections than it does uh with regard to like the expensive players because they're pretty much going to get their touches regardless all right let's talk about stacking and correlation next and for the listeners who might not be familiar with this concept this is i mean stacking is you know, one that's pretty commonly referred to in fantasy. That's where you use, you know, two players from the same team that can, you know, benefit from each other, like using the quarterback and a tight end from the same team. But there's also other types of correlations that we can do, right? We can correlate, you know, a quarterback on one team with a wide receiver on the other team expecting Mm -hmm. a shootout. So uh, how is this valuable in daily fantasy, Davis? Basically, the whole idea behind correlation is that if you just ran 150 pure optimals with no other inputs in terms of forcing stacks or whatever, uh, you would get the best 150 raw projected optimals, and they would all project for more fantasy points than 150 stacks where you said, okay, in every single one of these, the quarterback has to be paired with at least one of his top two wide receivers and one of his tight ends. So in theory you are actually losing expected value on those lineups. But in practice, because those plays correlate with each other, they actually, when points are scored by either that tight end or by that quarterback, they are actually exceeding their expected value in a way that the non-stacked lineup can't. And the same is true with lineups where you have a quarterback and the opposing wide receiver because every touchdown by the opposing team is going to cause the opposing team to pass more often, to be forced to score more points, to win the game. So the more players you get that correlate with each other in terms of the passing game, really the better the expected value of the lineup is. So like a, a great example is, uh, you know, those we'll keep just keep going back to those NFC South games. So if you had Drew Brees at your quarterback and you stacked him with Michael Thomas and Jared Cook, and then in that lineup you also put Calvin Ridley in there, that lineup probably looks pretty bad from an expected value standpoint. You know, that would be the 987th optimal ran on on 4for4.com. But in practice, once the result of the original touchdown happens, that has, you know, like, I don't don't know if I'm explaining this quite right, but, like, basically – 
when the two projections influence each other, they have the ability to have a much higher ceiling than when the two projections have no influence on one another. Right. You're raising your risk because you're tying a lot of your investment to one game and one potential you know, game flow scenario where you're expecting the shootout between the Saints and the Falcons. Exactly. But what you're also doing is you're elevating your ceiling because if that shootout happens, Drew Brees goes nuts throwing to Michael Thomas and Jared Cook and Atlanta's playing catch up the whole game, and Julio's getting the primary coverage from the Saints defense, which opens up more targets for Calvin Ridley, and Calvin Ridley has a big game, your ceiling for that overall lineup goes way up. And that's the appeal of these stacks and these correlations. Yeah, it's it's basically a way to build... So the, the function that stacking serves is... It creates unique lineups because people who are running raw optimizers with no inputted rules are not going to have those same lineups, and you have the ability to have higher individual scores inside of the same lineup. Can you give a couple other examples of types of correlation that you might see in a daily fantasy contest? So people do the uh, like the punt returner defense correlation. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, that doesn't tend to actually bear itself out <laughs> into winning lineups. And there probably is a little bit of value in the running back and defense correlation. But uh, the thing that you'll find when you play DFS for any like kind of significant amount of time is that uh, actually where defensive special teams points come from are not from limiting points or good game flow. It's it's pretty much strictly from defensive touchdowns, which are pretty like variable plays like so it, it doesn't end up being something that, uh, you know, actually bears itself out in terms of winning lineups like the the big correlations to focus on are quarterback with two pass catchers and, and and game stacks where you're stacking quarterbacks with opposing wide receivers or even opposing running backs sometimes. You know, we haven't talked about defense much at all on this, and I like that you kind of brought them up within this sort of context in that, you know, what you're really looking for are spiky splash weeks from a defense and special teams. What are some of the ways that you can try to identify that? Because like you said, you know, game totals can help us and spreads can help us, but you know, just in general, we want the defense on the field for those opportunities, right? And that might not always steer us towards the best defenses. It might steer us towards some of the more mediocre or even bad defenses at times, right? I mean, here here's a great example. The Kansas City Chiefs were a top 10 fantasy defense in DraftKings scoring last season, despite being, I think, I think they finished 31st in yards per play allowed. Because they they just they they got so many chances for sacks they got so many chances for uh, defensive like uh, like interception returns for touchdowns fumble returns for touchdowns and uh, and punt return and kick return touchdowns because they just were playing like teams had to throw against them every game right and there's value in that too if you can project game flow to where an offense is going to be predictable and that offense is going to be passing. The opposing defense, the opposing coaches know that too, right? And so they're going to be able to scheme up a little bit better defensive plans to disrupt that opposing offense because they know what's coming. And that's where you can find a lot of value in terms of game flow and you know expected usage of you know the opposing offense. Um, you, you've mentioned lineup optimizers a couple times, and I want to dive into that next uh, because yeah. I, I don't think... Everybody who plays DFS, I, I, I'm at, like, what, first of all, what percentage of DFS players do you believe are using lineup optimizers? So it's definitely, I would say the answer is less than I think, but probably more than the casual person thinks. Like, I just expect that everyone I'm playing in contests with is using them. So I don't think that's accurate, but I, I bet it's, I would imagine like 50% of people in these contests are using them. 
Okay, so what advantages are people gaining by using these optimizers? Well, for cash games, you're just seeing how all of the projections can combine into the best possible format, and you're seeing them all right there. For tournaments, you are just building more lineups than anyone could ever reasonably expect to build by hand. Uh, and so what all of the rules – so I've talked about rules and groups and stuff while we've been doing this, and what all of those exist to do is just make building lineups with an optimizer more like building lineups by hand. So if you went to go build uh, a game stack lineup by hand, let's say you wanted to game stack uh, Cincinnati versus Seattle for whatever reason, uh, you could do that very easily by hand. You know, okay, okay I'm going to click Russell Wilson. Uh, I'm going to click Joe Mixon. I'm going to click Chris Carson. I'm going to click DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, and boom, I have myself a game stack with all the good fantasy players in that game but like doing it doing that that would that lineup would never ever come there in a lineup optimizer that would have you'd have to run a million iterations without putting in a ton of rules like so saying uh like th like there are just a ton of rules and groups that you could create to get that lineup and that is that is both the biggest success and the biggest failing of optim well the biggest failing of an optimizer which we have here in our agenda is that all of the good plays, like just if you just think about it, what an optimizer is doing is it's trying to create a lineup with the most total fantasy points in it. So all of the good plays, right, uh, the the best value plays, the highest projected overall plays are going to be in the first 50 lineups. And then when you get to the 150th lineup, there's going to be all sorts of like low owned contrarian plays. But ideally, you would want the low owned contrarian plays to mix in with the really good plays. You wouldn't right. want them to be completely separate. And so that's the biggest failing of an optimizer. And that's where all of the groups and rules that I'm talking about comes in. So You've also mentioned ownership projections a couple of times mm -hmm. and how important those are. How can DFS players best use that information of projected ownership? Because we still want the best plays, even if they're high ownership sometimes, correct? Yeah. The basic, the basic way to think of this is what percent chance of success does the player have and how does that weigh versus the ownership projection? So let's say, let's say Alvin Kamara is projected at 50%, right? You'd, so you'd have to say, what are the percent chances that Alvin Kamara outscores James Conner, who's projected at 5% ownership? And uh, if you think it's not 50% or, or, well, I guess in that case, he'd have to be like insanely more likely to outscore James Conner for that ownership to be valid. So that right. that is the easiest way to think of it, is that are these plays with all of the ownership behind them, are they actually that likely to be the highest scoring player in that price range? So, you know, we'll see it uh, like, for example, the, the Tony Pollard example that I mentioned, I think he could creep up to like 45 to 60% ownership if Ezekiel Elliott is out and the team says Tony Pollard is the starting running back. And I think that would be a situation where it's totally justified because he is extremely out likely to outscore everyone else around him in price range on DraftKings and FanDuel. So I would, that would be an example of like good chalk to play an example of bad chalk. I'll give you one from last year that I played. You remember when Maurice Harris was the starting slot wide receiver for Washington? Yes. So for one week, whatever, there just was a confluence of bye weeks and whatever. And so I was like, okay, I got to get in 
uh, James Conner. I got to get in who X, Y, and Z. So like, I got to play Maurice Harris at like, you know, 40% owned or something. And of course he busted. He was a horrible play because cheap wide receivers are by their nature, super high variance. You know, they're likely playing with a bad quarterback. They're likely not even top on their team in targets and they're bad players. So even if they got eight targets, there's no lock that they catch half of those. There's no lock that they turn those into anything significant. So like, that is a great example of like horrible chalk that I knew better and still fell for. Yeah. This idea of ownership percentage and, you know, when to fade it and when to embrace it kind of reminds me of the discussions we always have regarding opportunity costs with quarterbacks and seasonal drafts. Whereas we know that quarterbacks are the highest scoring position. So like we look at Patrick Mahomes in a projection of quarterbacks and say, oh, well, he's clearly the best quarterback. Why am I not taking this guy in the first round? Well, it's because you're giving up something to do that, right? And in the ter- in the terms of a, a seasonal draft, you're giving up that first-round draft pick or that second-round draft pick to take Patrick Mahomes. In daily fantasy, what you're giving up is that potential to be on a player who's lower-owned, right? A player who has potentially a similar outcome or a similar projection at a lower ownership, which means that you're differentiating yourself a little bit more. Uh, does that comparison make sense to you? Am I crazy? No, it, so it makes, it makes total sense. So I'm, I'm looking here at our projections on Daily Roto and we don't have, we don't have ownership projections yet. Uh, so what you'll, and I, I'm not going to make the example about quarterback because quarterbacks are, uh, Quarterbacks generally, you know, they're they're never really going to be that owned just by nature of the quarterback. So right. here is here's a really good example. Uh, Dalvin Cook, I think, is probably pretty likely to be chalk at home against Atlanta and uh, Le'Veon Bell, uh, on Johnson, uh, Tevin Coleman. They're all projected within, you know, kind of like five to eight points of Dalvin Cook. And or or even Damian Williams, right? So Damian Williams, this is actually this Greg, this is the best Uh-oh. possible example. We got that. Okay. So no one has any certainty about Damian Williams, right? LaShawn McCoy signed, Darwin Thompson's there, Jacksonville's theoretically this good defense. Uh Kansas City, uh, it was the only game that Patrick Mahomes didn't throw a touchdown in last year when they played Jacksonville. I would wager Damian Williams might come in at like sub 2% ownership. I mean, he could, he could really be the, the starting running back for the Kansas city chiefs might just be completely unowned because of all this uncertainty. Whereas the guys around him, Dalvin cook, Le'Veon bell, David Johnson, Christian McCaffrey, Nick Chubb, all these dudes are going to be, you know, five to 10 times more owned, but they are pretty certainly not five to 10 times more likely to outscore Damian Williams and fantasy points. Cause Damian Williams is a chiefs running back. He could score 30 fantasy points on 12 touches. That, right. that is a real thing that could happen. And so that this right here is literally the perfect example. It's taking someone in an uncertain situation in terms of uh, volume distribution, but who clearly has upside, who is not going to be owned relative to his counterpoints, just because people feel more certain about the uh, volume of people uh, projected around him. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper on that idea of Jacksonville being this you know, thought to be great defense, right? And not necessarily specifically about Jacksonville, but more about when you look at these DFS sites and let's say you are making a lineup by hand, whether you're on FanDuel, Yahoo, DraftKings, all these places will give you the opponent's points allowed ranking against that position, right? So if I look at DraftKings and I look at Damian Williams, it says that Jacksonville allowed the ninth fewest fantasy points to running backs. And if I look one spot above, I see Nick Chubb as you know, the fourth fewest uh, against Tennessee. And 
I want to know, or I want you to kind of explain to the listeners why that stuff is okay to overlook, why why that necessarily isn't important, because unfortunately the sites do this like color coding, where if it's a quote-unquote bad matchup, it shows up in red. If it's a good matchup, it shows up in green. But what we're really looking for are the roles of these players more than the matchups, right? Yeah, exactly. We, we are looking at usage, uh, targets, carries, uh, where those targets and carries come from. We are looking at all of that way more than we're looking at strength of defensive matchup. Like I, I am, I just, in general, if you were to choose one of the two things, making all of your decisions based off of defensive strength against position or against the runner pass, or just completely disregarding all of that and just looking at touches or, or carries plus targets, you would have way better results in DFS just looking at carries plus targets. Like, uh, there, there is some reasonable people who think that, you know, uh, you know, forecasting defensive strength is important. Uh, there's some people who look really in depth at like wide receiver cornerback matchups, but in general, I think you are best. Everything should stem from forecasting volume. And then everything else after that is secondary. Yeah. I think I'd rather project game flow than project defense. And exactly. That's not something that is really easy to wrap your brain around sometimes, but when you look at Damian Williams, when you look at Nick Chubbs, yes, they're theoretically going against tough run defenses, but they're also just on the better teams in those matchups, right? Cleveland should beat Tennessee. Kansas City should beat Jacksonville. And if these teams are going to be winning, they're going to be wanting to run the ball some amount. And if we're projecting that sort of game flow, then... That's where the opportunity for these running backs is going to come from. Man, I think we've laid a really good foundation here of kind of DFS basics and principles. So I really want to dig into week one with you, Davis, before we do one more break for our sponsors. Fantasy football fans, listen up. Do you want to prove yourself in the biggest NFL season-long tournament ever? Of course you do. If you love fantasy football, and we know you do, then you need to enter the $3.5 million best ball championship on draft. That's right. $3.5 million in real money is on the line. This tourney is massive. Here's how drafts best ball contests work. They're season long, but with no management. Set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire, no setting lineups. Your best players are automatically started, and you'll get the best possible score each week guaranteed. These are real life snake drafts, no salary caps, just like you play with your friends in home leagues. There's no better place to play, and you can draft a team anytime you want because leagues start every couple minutes. Just do a draft, and you could be a millionaire 16 weeks later. Draft makes it that easy. To download the app, just search Draft in the app or Play Store, or play right from your computer on Draft.com. Either way, you can be drafting your first best ball championship team within minutes of signing up. Right now, all new players get free entry into a best ball draft when they make their first deposit. Simply use promo code 4 for 4 the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. That's right, you'll get to play in a real money game for free. All you have to do is search Draft in your app store, or go to Draft.com and use promo code 4 for 4 Okay, Davis. Week one DFS, you've talked a lot about chalk, and what we mean by chalk is a player who is likely to be highly owned, uh, you know, a, a chalky pick. With this in mind, which chalk are you willing to eat? Like, which high projected ownerships are you okay with, you know, buying into in week one? Uh, well, the first one, of course, is going to be Tony Pollard. I will be, I will be all over that. Uh, I don't actually have a great sense of uh, which games are going to be like the most chalk. I guess that uh, you know a lot of the, the the Chiefs' offense, like Kelsey, will be chalk. He'll be one of the most owned tight ends. Uh, the Rams Panthers game has a fifty point five total, so I'm thinking, uh, you know, pretty likely that. Uh, Pretty likely that Brandon Cooks, Jared Goff, or Chalk. I, I wonder. I wonder what uh, 
what if the team will make any announcement on Todd Gurley or anything. So if Todd Gurley wasn't going to play, uh, I would think Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown would be re- really high owned. But uh, the so examples of chalk that I would eat would be Kelsey at tight end, Tony Pollard at running back, Brandon Cooks or Robert Woods at uh, at wide receiver. I think Dalvin Cook at running back in that game against Atlanta is pretty good as well. So like those are those are all examples of guys who are projected really high that I have no issue with playing them. So how would you kind of define those archetypes of players? Like with Kelsey, it's pretty easy. He's just like that target hog tight end with a ton of, you know, just raw talent. Like it makes sense why he would be a chalky player and why you'd be willing to do that just because he is the best at his position. Tony Pollard doesn't necessarily get that. He's the archetype of being someone who's just really, really cheap, right? So what other sorts of, I guess, big picture trends can people look for when trying to identify which players are going to be the highest owned uh, if they don't necessarily have access to or projected really what you should you should just expect that players in high total games are going to be more owned than uh their compatriots at the same price so like you know if adam thielen and julio jones are within 200 dollars of each other one of them is in a high total game one of them is in a low total game the high total game player is going to be significantly more owned so that's that's a very simple way to to think about those things and if the salary is low for whatever reason that's another indicator that a player might be more chalk right well yeah just so if as generally assume starting running back gets hurt backup running back is going to be starting and the backup running back is priced like a backup running back that guy is going to be chalks you know that i mean that could be that could be true for 30 teams you know uh tevin coleman gets hurt uh, Brita is going to be chalk. Uh, Leonard Fournette gets hurt. Reichel Armstead is going to be chalk. Derrick Henry gets hurt. Well, I don't actually know if Dion Lewis would be chalk at this point. People seem to hate that guy, but you guys, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about these games here. Uh, which of these high total games do you think is most likely to actually disappoint us with a lower score than expected? A lower score than expected. Um, or just less fantasy production, I guess. I, yeah, I think I think uh, San Francisco-Tampa Bay could be kind of brutal if uh, if Jimmy G just doesn't play well. That So that's 49 and a half. And I actually think the 49ers kind of want to play that, like, ball control. You know, if, if Shanahan was able to get 40 rushing attempts in in this game, I actually think he'd be happy. So how about the other way? Is there a lower total game that you think has potential to maybe surprise us with a high-scoring shootout? Yeah, Lions Cardinals. If the if the Cardinals get up 10-0, 14-0 early, the Lions are going to have to abandon the super slow plotting carry on Johnson, CJ Anderson offense that they want to run and Stafford will just chuck the ball 60 times. Like I mean, we so it's so funny with the Lions. We've seen them do the the super fast, or not super fast, but just tons of plays because they're throwing the ball in like 70% of their plays. We've seen them do that with Stafford, and then last year we saw them go the other way. But I think for this game, assuming a, a hot start for the Cardinals, I think we could see, you know, we could see uh, 120 plays or 140 plays ran in this game. So how would you apply that to your DFS portfolio in week one? Like which players would you target or fade based upon those potential expectations for that uh, Cardinals Lions game? So I would do something like in Kyler lineups, uh, use minimum two of Christian Kirk, Larry Fitzgerald, uh, Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay, maybe, maybe even, uh, you know, boost TJ Hawkinson up a little bit because uh, that's like another example of like, 
yeah, TJ Hawkins probably unlikely to even record a reception in this game. But if he has two targets, two touchdowns at, uh, you know, I think he's probably the dead minimum salary. That's like a potential slate winning guy. And you would only need like 3% of him in your lineups to be like super uh, overweight relative to the field. So which games are you staying away from completely at this point? I don't know if I will have anyone in Colts chargers. Maybe I, so if, okay. So if, uh, if, Melvin Gordon is out of that game for sure. I will probably play Austin Eckler, but it probably not in on Mike. Well, well, no, I lied because Hunter Henry is so cheap. Uh, wow, I don't know if I will be avoiding any of. There's kind of someone I like in all of these games. Bills Jets seems not great. You know, not really into playing Josh Allen or Sam Darnold. Uh, not into playing Le'Veon Bell. Washington Philadelphia has a decent total, but I don't think there's anyone playable on Washington. And the, we're pretty unclear on how volume is going to shake out in the Eagles backfield right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Is that typical for you to not really be fading? too many games on a given slate it sounds like you're generally going to be willing to play anybody from any game for the most part is that correct uh yeah i mean it's just again it is all relative to price like so for example baltimore miami has this horrible total you know don't really want to play anyone but lamar jackson is an amazing play this first week and because i think i think he's pretty low owned relative to consensus the total is the lowest of the week by far but i think i think lamar could have you know 30 fantasy points pretty easily Speaking of Lamar Jackson, let's talk about quarterbacks. Give me, you know, a budget option that you like at the QB position. Uh, well, I mean, of course, Kyler. Kyler is uh, Kyler is relatively cheap, and I, I I am a big believer in Kyler. Big believer in the uh, Arizona offensive philosophy. You know, I'm a big air raid guy, and I think that maybe earlier in the preseason it seemed like Kyler was going to be owned a lot. I think pretty much now, not at all. I, I think people are are pretty off that game and that offense, at least for DFS purposes. How often do you find yourself digging really down to the bottom of the barrel at the QB position? Like, would you consider a player like Nick Foles just because he's against Kansas City? This is one of those games where you can make that argument, oh, well, he's going to have to throw, and he's super cheap in these DFS platforms. So is that a type of player that you will use very often in DFS? So you generally don't have to in week one contests because in week one contests, and this has been true every year I've ever played Daily Fantasy, uh, the salaries are just super soft for a couple reasons. One, they want it to be softer for the people who are depositing and playing for the first time. And two, there's always one or two injuries that opens someone up, you know, so whether that be Tony Pollard or whoever, there just are always ways that, uh, that the week one salaries are going to be soft. But week eight, we got bye weeks, you know, we got injuries. Uh, and, and there, you know, maybe there are only four really good, like gold star plays and you want to play them all. And to do that, you have to play. I mean, I mean, I've played Kevin Hogan in cash games before I played Cody Kessler, like it, it, cause if those guys are really the dead minimum at 4,000, I think that there's, I played Deshaun Kaiser, uh, in, in cash games before, especially guys who can run a little bit who are minimum salary. Those guys are generally like pretty good points per dollar plays. All right, now let's move to running back. Who are some better values at that position for you in week one? Uh, well, right away, our projections at Daily Roto do really like Nick Chubb against Tennessee because we have him projected for. Uh, I think we are above the market 
in terms of projecting his receiving share, I have him getting about 12% of the Browns targets, which, you know, ups him from a, a kind of a mediocre play to a very good play, especially because they are also five and a half point favorites, 25 point team total. Those are all really good for a running back. Uh, Dalvin Cook, $6,000 on DraftKings against Atlanta. Really like him. Uh, as, as mentioned, I will be playing much more David Johnson than, uh, than the field. I, I'm pretty interested in him. Tevin Coleman and Matt Breida against Tampa Bay. Uh, I like both of them quite a bit as well. And then the aforementioned Tony Pollard and Austin Eckler, I think, are both pretty good plays, uh, assuming no Melvin Gordon, assuming no Ezekiel Elliott. Earlier you touched on the kind of nebulous outlook for the Philadelphia backfield, but that would normally be a matchup as big favorites against Washington to target with a running back in DFS. And Miles Sanders is only 3900 on DraftKings, 6000 on FanDuel. What would be the argument against, you know, plugging him into, you know, a couple of tournament lineups? Is there, is there any argument against it or am I on track here? No, you are you are exactly on track and I think you're actually making a, a pretty sharp point which is that there there is uncertainty about this and you should take advantage of that uncertainty. You should be you should be trying to take advantage of the fact that there's this really talented player for this good offense but no one is going to be playing him at all. Yeah, good deal. Now, you mentioned the 49ers running backs and they were kind of on my list to ask you about but it sounds like you're into playing both of them how should we sort out the 49ers wide receivers because again you look at the game total for Niners bucks and it seems good could be a potential shootout there and especially if the Niners fall behind and they have to throw and aren't able to run quite as much some of those receivers are going to have value is the argument just to stay away from all of them and maybe play George Kittle or how are you approaching that scenario yeah for me for me it's it's Kittle I I don't I don't really like Austin Pettis. I don't have a good sense of how, or I don't really like Dante Pettis, rather. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just am not super into that offense outside of the running backs and Kittle, partly because there's uncertainty and partly because I don't view that as a situation where the uncertainty would be so profitable that I should invest in it. Fair enough. So which wide receivers are you looking at as values? Wide receiver is always, you know, a little bit trickier. I think that Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore are two of the overall strongest plays. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, they're in a good total game. Uh, the team total of 24, Cam Newton seems healthy, uh, maybe, but maybe is going to run a little bit less, which should benefit them. Brandon Cooks, uh, someone I'm really interested in, Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. Uh, Tyler Boyd, really interesting, horrible team total, really bad situation there, but I think his volume could end up being insane for that week. Uh, Chris Godwin, another interesting guy, though he's likely to be, uh, you know, the fairly chalky overall. And then the, uh, you know, just got to keep mentioning my Arizona boys, Christian Kirk, uh, 4,700 on DraftKings, think he's interesting as well. Yeah, on the other side of that matchup, you mentioned him earlier too, Marvin Jones at forty eight hundred DraftKings. Yeah. yeah, I like I like the Lions receivers for that reason. What do you think about the receivers for Jacksonville? I mentioned you know Foles is a potential bargain basement option. If you like that situation, and I kind of do, I, that kind of means I need to like D.D. Westbrook or maybe D.J. Chark or someone in that receiving game. Is that a situation where you would only use those guys in game stacks, or do you think they have standalone value in Jacksonville? I think D.D. Westbrook has standalone value. I think Shark is a really good um, – Shark would be a really good game stack sort of play because I, I think he is another guy who will come in, you know, 1%, 2% ownership maximum. And, uh, you know, he has uh, he has a very similar ceiling to what, uh, what Dante Moncrief was in that role last year, except we think that Foles is a little bit better than Bortles. Do you have any interest – 
in Sammy Watkins on the other side of that matchup. He's 5K on DraftKings, uh, 6.3 on FanDuel, and the reports are that Tyreek Hill is going to draw Jalen Ramsey, right? So does that maybe open up more opportunity for Sammy Watkins to get targets? Uh, What are you doing with him? Yeah, big time, big time interested in Sammy Watkins. I I, I think there's maybe even an outside chance that I will be playing him in cash games on DraftKings, but I think he is, uh, you know, a, a premier play on both sides. Now, the last guy I want to ask you about at wide receiver, and I think I know the answer because you already kind of poo-pooed the idea of using Seattle wide receivers in this sort of, you know, game spread and game total scenario, but Gary Jennings, he's min-price, and, you know, we don't think DK Metcalf will be on 100%. We know that David Moore's not playing. Jerron Brown got cut. Like, Gary Jennings is kind of the wide receiver, too, by default. Does it just not matter because Seattle should be able to run the ball to victory here? What's your take on that situation? Yeah, we just have Seattle projected for so few passing attempts in this game that it's hard for me to get excited about anyone in their passing offense. Okay, fair enough. Now let's move to tight end. Uh, Give me a couple plays you like at this position. Well, if you're playing on DraftKings, Hunter Henry is going to be the most popular play by far. Uh, I think that uh, a healthy Jordan Reed also will be pretty popular. Travis Kelsey, of course, is going to be popular. Uh, Greg Olson, I've already mentioned Carolina. I think yeah. Greg Olson is uh, is a good play. And also, I, I think that uh, Tyler Eifert and C.J. Uzama, uh, C.J. Uzama in particular, incredibly cheap, 2600 on DraftKings. And I think we, we could probably give him you know kind of a reasonable four to six target projection. That's an example of like in a lineup where you could use Uzama as the only player from that game and just go all studs at every other position. His counterpart there, Eifert, it's, it's one of those things where I kind of just want to use him before we lose him again. <laughs> you know? Right, totally. Like, if he's healthy, he's a good player. They, they're not going to have A.J. Green. Like, I could see a scenario where he gets, you know, a, a handful of targets, and that could be good enough if he scores a touchdown. I, I love the Olsen call. He, he was on my list of guys to consider. I think a couple of the other more boring veteran guys could make sense here, like Delaney Walker, if Tennessee is playing catch-up at Cleveland. That, that could make some sense to me. And then the other one I want to throw out here is the, the welcome home Witten narrative street for Dallas. You know, like first game back after that year in the booth, uh, a pretty soft opponent in the Giants. Like I could see them working to get him involved. Uh, do you, is that a little too narrative heavy for you? Or what do you think about Witten as, as maybe a budget option at tight end? Uh, I just think, I mean, I, like I'm, I'm all on board for the Dallas onslaught because I think, I think their offense is just going to be so improved this year. So I'm, I'm pretty interested in all of their pieces. I would say, uh, like he's just an example of a guy like I, you, you probably are never winning a, a million dollars with, with Jason Winton. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, one player you might win a million dollars with is Gerald Everett. He's the last guy on my list at tight end. Do you have any, any, yeah. any interest in him at Carolina? And again, what could be a shootout? You like the receivers there. Do you also like the tight end? Yeah, I, I I kind of think that uh, I kind of think that they might actually use more. Uh, like I think they might play him more this year and and use him more as a, a real part in their passing game, just kind of to compensate for the fact that they can't give Gurley twenty two touches a game anymore. Last one here, defense. Who do you like? Uh, I I imagine that I will probably be playing some of these really bad defenses like Tampa Bay and San Francisco. Uh, I imagine the the Jets probably will be in there. Uh, I imagine that the Chiefs twenty eight hundred at home against Nick Foles will probably be in there. Those are those are all sort of compelling to me. Okay, and so why are you targeting those bad defenses and those cheaper defenses relative to some of the ones that might look like stronger plays, like say? Philadelphia at home against Washington. Uh, can you can you dig into that just a little bit more? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's all a salary thing. Like, just spending 3800 3600 3500 on a defense when the scoring is so noisy and it's really all bait. Like, like, the Ravens could hold Miami to three points and get outscored by the Panthers if the Panthers get one defensive touchdown. Yeah, it makes sense. Man, Davis, this has been awesome. Thank you for taking all this time to talk DFS with me. Is there any other big-picture piece of advice that you want to offer up to Daily Fantasy players before we sign off? Uh, I would just say uh, the the most useful thing you can have with yourself in terms of playing daily fantasy is being honest with yourself about your abilities and what you're wanting to get out of the activity. Uh, you know, I think I think even if you are a guy who can't beat cash games, that doesn't mean that you can't figure out a way to beat tournaments or or give yourself chances at winning life changing money every single week just by uh, targeting correlation and using ownership projection to your advantage. Good deal. Why don't you let the listeners know where they can find your work, uh, where they can find you on social media and all that good stuff. So all of my fantasy football work is done at rotoexperts.com and dailyroto.com. Those are the two sports grid, uh, fantasy football and daily fantasy sports companies. You can also listen to me on the Takecast. My most recent guest was Matthew Barry. You guys will probably enjoy that episode, but a lot of other good and interesting, uh, you know, evergreen episodes throughout the catalog. And, uh, you can watch me every Friday on the Swolecast. Good deal. Thanks again, Davis. It was great to have you on. Hey, thanks so much. Listeners, for more great DFS content, do yourself a favor. Get yourself a 444 subscription to access our lineup optimizer and other fantastic tools. Use the promo code TMAP, T-M-A-P, for 10% off the cost of your 2019 membership. And as mentioned at the top of the show, you should really check out 444's other podcasts, Fantasy First with Holden Kushner for quick and digestible fantasy news every weekday, DFS MVP with Holden and TJ Hernandez for all your daily fantasy needs, and Ship Chasing with Peter Overzet and Pat Green for all the latest from the world of high-stakes fantasy football. Otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter, at GregSauce. Hit me up on there if you have any feedback for the show, or you can always leave a constructive review on iTunes. The next time you hear me, I'll be breaking down week one with another great guest. Just call me Bart Scott, because I can't wait! Until then, thanks for tuning in to the Most Accurate Podcast. <laughs>